Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is Alistair Campbell. Alistair is a writer, strategist and mental health campaigner who's best known for his role as spokesman and campaign director for Tony Blair. Alistair started out in journalism and became political editor of The Mirror before entering the political fray. He remains a prolific writer who's found his voice, and lots of listeners, as a podcaster, disagreeing agreeably with co-host Rory Stewart on Rest is Politics. His latest book is titled But What Can I Do? A question he finds more urgent than ever in a political landscape dominated by post-truth, polarisation and populism. We recorded this conversation on the 25th of April, shortly after Alistair had returned from Belfast, an event marking 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement. It's a good time to reflect on New Labour's legacy and a little disagreement of our own. Alistair Campbell, we have history. Mm. And this is mentioned briefly in your book, but what can I do? So let's clear the air 20 years on. You were personally under attack and... On Channel 4 News, I asked if it was time for you to resign. Was this story the most personal it ever got for you? And how angry did you feel at that moment? I do briefly mention it in this book, and I mention it in the context of sometimes, although it's good to keep your feelings under and your emotions under control, sometimes you have to let them show. I say in the book that Fiona, my partner, to this day, thinks it was a terrible error of me to go in uh, because you remember when I, I was number 10 spokesman, I didn't do interviews. I did briefings, I didn't do interviews. Mm. But I just had enough of the whole thing. I had enough of the nonsense that was being said. The thing that tipped me over the edge was the letter that I got from that day from the BBC, still standing by the lies that Gilligan had told. And so I just decided 
I was going to do it. And it's become a sort of one of those mythological things where I stormed in and you weren't expecting me. You might not have been, but Channel 4 certainly were because I'd, I'd phoned them up first and said, no, I'm not doing an interview. John Reed's going to do it. And then I thought, sod it, I'll do it. And uh, I phoned them up and said, all right, I'm on my way in. Um, so I was angry, but I, I say in the book... You not... were the angriest I think I ever knew anybody be in the studio at Channel 4 News. No. Yeah, you were awfully angry. I felt my bottom was being spanked. Oh, John, I'm sure that given your educational background, that wouldn't have been the first time. <laughs> um, but I, 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 do, I watched it back recently for, when I was writing the book. I think if you read a transcript, I stand by absolutely every word. But tonally, I think it was perhaps a bit angry. But I've got to tell you, the first message that I got when I left the studio was a text message from a mutual friend of ours. Neil Kinnock, mm. and he said, absolutely brilliant, spot on, had to be said. I got home and the reaction was mm. very, very different. Well, of course, it was a kind of Neil Kinnock moment, wasn't it? Because he, he wasn't averse to having a quick outlet. No, there was a phase when he kept getting into scuffles with people who were winding him up. But I think the point I'm making in the... Look, the book is not about me and broadcasting. It's about how to get engaged mm. in politics. Mm. And the other incident I refer to in the, in the same context is John Prescott when he thumped that guy in the face, and that was also 22 years ago now. I think the public, they'd rather their politicians didn't go around thumping voters, but I think they rather respected him for, for showing his feeling in the way that he did. Um, anyway, Fiona and I will never agree. What did you think at the time that when I was sort of sitting there stabbing my pen at you? I thought, that's Alistair Campbell. <laughs> Don't get frightened. <laughs> Don't let him put you off. <laughs> Listen, it was, if you read it back, it was a perfectly good interview mm. on both sides. It was. And you, you do come across as very confident. You're a formidable opponent in any, any debate. But nerves and anxiety can get the better of you, can't they? What coping mechanisms do you have? Well, again, I write about this because I think for a lot of young people, and I'm trying to get young people more interested in politics, mm. as well as older people who've given up, for a lot of people, I think the idea of standing up in front of other people and saying what you think and public speaking, I suppose, in the old-fashioned sense, I think it's one of the most common fears amongst everybody. And it's a fear that you have to conquer, particularly in the modern age. I think, you know, you think about the importance of going for job interviews or, you know, one of my favourite techniques, funny enough, I was talking to my daughter this morning. She's about to go abroad for a few days and, and she's got a new dog and we're looking mm -hmm. after the dog and she's anxious about the dog. And she said, I'm really, really feeling very anxious. And I reminded her of this thing that I do when I feel anxious. I rub my thumbs and forefingers together like that, mm. very, very, very gently in a circular motion. I do this a lot when I'm being interviewed. Jeremy Paxman, I think I mentioned in the book, because once I was being interviewed by him, and I was the main interview at the top of the programme, and I was having a really bad asthma attack, which was probably anxiety, psychosomatic. And to be fair to Jeremy, he said, I'll keep things going until you feel OK. And I just sat there and I did this for a few seconds, and it sort of centred me. I think it'll come as a surprise to people that this boundlessly confident individual that they encountered ever really needed coping mechanisms to do anything. I think we all do, though. I think we all have bad days and good days. And I think anxiety, to some extent, it can be a good thing. I think, for example, when you talk about actors with stage fright, what that's about is about them finding a mechanism to boost their own performance. They make themselves nervous in a way. So I think that sort of anxiety is good. But I sometimes get to a level of anxiety where 
I just can't, it's almost like I can't function. It can one minute be over whether I need to get a haircut and the next over climate change and whether the planet's going to be here in 10 years. And then the next minute I'm worrying about whether I've got enough shirts on a trip to Sweden or something. So the anxiety is just as intense, whether it's an issue that's small or large. And that's when I realised, you know, I need to recenter and get my mind back in a better place. Because I can tell you that, for me, I wondered whether I was going to get hit. And I don't think I've ever experienced that with anybody else. I was never going to hit you. I was (laughs) never going to hit you. I I, I wasn't conscious of the fact that... You were very angry. I was angry. There's no doubt about that. But I wasn't angry with you. I was angry with the BBC. Yeah, but I felt you were angry with me. No, not at all. Well, that's very sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think um, adversarial encounters contribute to a lack of engagement in politics, that we need to show a little bit more respect? Well, the podcast I do with Rory Stewart, one of the reasons we started to do it, we have this motto of disagreeing agreeably. And, you know, we were saying before we started the interview, you were saying that actually to have a bit more time than you get in an interview. I think it's time that's important. Um, I do have a temper and I do get, I can get easily provoked if somebody says something that I fundamentally disagree with or says something stupid, I, I will rise to it. I'm not scared of, of having an argument. But then how does that play in number 10? You're advising the Prime Minister, are you going to suddenly stand up and say, Tony, you can't have it like that. No, no, it's absolutely not on. Well, yeah, you can. And, and, and actually, I think that's something that, to his credit, that he wanted us to do. He wanted to be challenged. But I think within the sort of public discourse, I agree with you, I think that it would be better if we were able to have more agreeable discourse it's very difficult with the modern media because they think you know channel four the program you were on for so many years was something of an exception you did have a bit more time but the fact is that you know a lot of media now it's all they want is the conflict Hmm. and there's the lack of kind of exploration of issues and i think the reason why podcasts are taking off in the way that they are is they're actually they try and explore issues in greater depth i agree and it's very interesting because so often people say oh no story here yeah, exactly. And it's just because nobody lost their temper. Or this thing about there's nothing new. Well, I think sometimes just to say it'd be really quite interesting to talk to so-and-so about mm. such and such, there doesn't have to always be some sort of great news angle to it. That brings me to your podcast with Rory Stewart. Yeah. And you disagree very agreeably. But I wondered how it came about because you are chalk and cheese. We're quite <laughs> different, it has to be said. <laughs> I'll tell you how it came about. So there's a podcast established before ours called The Rest is History, hmm. and it's produced by Goalhanger Productions, which is Gary Lineker's firm. And the guy who runs the podcast side of it is a guy called Tony Pastor that I've known for a long time because, like me, he's a Burnley fan. And so I've seen him at football matches for decades. Hmm. And he phoned I can me. hold my head up these days. I support Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they had a bit of bad luck at the weekend. Yeah, they did. <laughs> that really was bad luck. Uh, I thought they were the better team, I have to say. So he said, this rest is history politics. It's just two guys talking about history. We think there's a market for one, which is two guys talking about politics, and we think it should be you and a Tory. Their initial idea was Dominic Cummings, which I think was a pretty bad idea. But I did speak to Dominic Cummings to see whether he was remotely interested. He wasn't really. I think we both agreed it wouldn't work. And then I went onto social media and said to my followers, if I did a podcast with a Tory, who do you think it should be? And about a good quarter to a third came back with Rory Stewart. And I thought, it was interesting. They obviously think he's sort of different and quirky, which he is. So I phoned him up. We did a pilot two days later and we started it a week later. It works sublimely because he is a posh boy. 
And you are, but you hide it. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not posh. I, I'm not posh, but I'm, I guess I'm a sort of fairly typical kind of middle class. I've got quite an interesting collection in my background. I feel 100% Scottish because of my parents. Mm -hmm. I feel more connected to Yorkshire, where I was born, than anywhere else that I've lived, even though I've got no family there anymore. Mm -hmm. And I only lived there till I was 11. Mm -hmm. I lived there longer than you did. Did you? Yeah. How long did you live there? I lived there from the age of eight yeah. till the age of 18. Right. I went to Scarborough Tech to try and get my bloody A-levels. Right. Um, and... Uh, I loved it. I yeah. loved it. Yeah, well, I, lo I love them. And that's the thing with Burnley, actually, is partly about having a reason to go back to the north. Mm. And yet I've lived most of my adult life in, in was London. Was that how you selected Burnley Football Club? No, because that was close to where, we, where I grew up, uh -huh, 20 uh -huh. miles away. Uh -huh. I feel very connected back there, even though I've never lived there. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And, it's and, a glorious county. Oh, it? it's beautiful. And then Rory's, Rory Stewart's, you know, Etonian, dad a spy... Very different interests. I've never met anybody in my entire life who knows less about sport than he does. So that's another sort of massive difference. I'm slightly obsessed. He thinks I'm obsessed, which I am a bit. But it's sort does of Does he mug up at all? On sport? Yeah, I mean, does he no, tease he, you when Burnley lose? He occasionally pretends that he's sort of taken an interest. <laughs> but uh, No, but it does seem to work. And, and the funny sort of thing is that I would say we've been doing it for a year now We've probably been face-to-face -face half a dozen, max, times, and yet just doing it on Zoom or Zencaster seems to work. Mm, it does work, for yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, the first, first part of your book looks at what's gone wrong in politics, and you identify the unholy trinity of polarisation, populism and post-truth. Applying any of these Ps, can you break down the Brexit leave campaign as you see it? including tactics? With those three, those absolutely, peeps. absolutely. Well, populism, the populist politician divides the country into the pure people and an, and an overbearing elite. And the politician says, I represent you against the elite. And Brexit was framed very much in that way. Mm. The polarisation attached to it was essentially to say, we're now in tribes, there's a leave tribe and there's a remain tribe. And the tactics that they deployed were all about basically telling people what they wanted to hear, regardless of whether it was true or not. You give the argument that they want to hear. Europe is terrible. Brexit's going to be great. They were basically saying the elite is trying to stop you from having what you want, which is your freedom to take back control. Take back control suggested that we'd lost control, which we hadn't. And post-truth... It's more than lying. It's actually it's shaping a completely distorted reality. Mm. We hold all the cards. They need us more than we need them. £350 million a week for the National Health Service. These weren't just lies. This was framing a different reality. And if you think about it, they're still attached to that reality, even though it's been exposed as nonsense. Leave put together a very effective, I say in the book, the messaging was faultless, but they did tell a pack of lies. And there's been no real accountability for that. By the way, I can't take credit for the three Ps. It was a guy called Moises Naim. You should actually have in your podcast. He's absolutely brilliant. He's a Venezuelan who wrote a book called Revenge of Power, and he puts these three Ps at the heart of it. And it's not, of course, we've had it with Brexit, but we have it with Trump, you have it with Putin, you have it with Modi, 
You have it with Orban, you have it with Erdogan, a lot of modern political leaders, they're 3P autocrats. But do you think people sat around a table and actually worked through this and said, this is what we're going to do, we're going to mislead the people in this way? Yes, I do. I think actually the Dominic Cummings approach was that the more that the lies got talked about, the better. So, for example, when the Statistics Authority said that you cannot say what you're saying on the side of that bus, it is not true, they were delighted. People got angrier, you covered it more on the Channel 4 News and the newspapers wrote about it more. It cemented itself ever more deeply into the public mind. Why is it that one can get away with post-truth content in a political campaign if just, for example, the Advertising Standards Authority acts against a company using false eyelashes in a mascara commercial? But it seems on these much bigger issues, people can lie and distort and get away with it. Well, it's, it is interesting how you see this when they come up and say the teachers need to do better and the nurses need to do mm. better and the doctors need to do better. Apart from the electoral process, which is a big thing, I get that, you can kick out an MP. And I think this thing on standards, it's like the thing with the press. I mean, the press like to project themselves as sort of, we just tell the facts. I mean, they don't. They skew the facts according to their own agenda. I think the public are aware of that, but it doesn't mean it's, it doesn't influence the way that people think about the world and the politics. It was utterly devastating. I can say that too now, now that I'm not a presenter, but <laughs> in all honesty, to have to sit there night after night watching us leave the European Union, mm. which is, I think, one of the greatest disasters in modern history. Yeah, I do think that the broadcast media has a lot of responsibility for the way that they covered that campaign. The BBC definitely got locked into this idea that, well, if we've got an economist saying it's a terrible idea, we have to get one saying it's a good idea, as opposed to let's actually analyse this from a factual perspective. They got hooked on this idea of you have to balance one argument against another. And I do think the thing about post-truth is that the fact that there's been no real accountability for the lies that were told. Mm. There was a thing yesterday where they talked about a public inquiry into Brexit, which, fine, I think that would be a good thing to do. But actually, the fact that Boris Johnson, who led that campaign, far from being punished for having told a pack of lies, he becomes Foreign Secretary and then he becomes Prime Minister. Mm. Mm. And he's been kicked out of office, not because of Brexit, but because he got found out for who and what he is. Brexit still happened. I mean, I think the guy was the worst Prime Minister we've ever had, with the possible exception of Liz Truss. But <laughs> I do think that the fact that Brexit has happened means, whether we like it or not, he's a figure in history now because of what he achieved. And, and the fact that it's damaging is kind of, from his perspective, neither here nor there. And the truth is, there wasn't a crying public demand for a referendum. It was no. manufactured by the Tory right and by their media supporters. So I don't have a problem with there having to be referendums from time to time. For example, I think it was right that there was a referendum on Scotland. I actually would have preferred it if we could have all have had a vote. It's particularly Scots who are living in outside Scotland. I think it was right, for example, on, in relation to the Northern Ireland peace process that, that, that was a referendum north and south on the Good Friday Agreement. But the problem with the Brexit referendum, both Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande warned David Cameron that you'll find on something as contentious as this within your own party, it will become about a lot more than Europe. And of course it did. And I think a lot of people who voted Brexit, they voted Brexit because they didn't like David Cameron. I met people who said, I'm going to vote Leave because I want to give Cameron a smack in the face. Do you think the impact of Brexit will be long lasting? I have a horrible feeling 
that June 23rd, 2016, was when the UK voted for its own decline. So a lot depends on whether it can be fixed. I'm not very happy with the Labour Party saying that their line is we're going to make Brexit work. I get why they're doing it politically, but I think there's a lot about it that has to be fixed. You seem, therefore, to be saying it will never be reversed. I don't know whether it will be reversed, but I do think the next generation is entitled to try to do that. And I also think that the next generation has a duty, actually, to say, you know, we can't carry on living in this kind of fantasy world where an event which took 4% out of the economy, minimum, right, 4%, The OBR has issued figures which show that the Brexit has taken a big chunk out of the economy. If anything else had done that, we'd try and fix it. There's this kind of, I call it the Brexamerta, you know, don't mention the Brexit. You have to, in the end, get back into the real world. And I think the next generation will actually look at this again. But that being said, you know, imagine... Well, it would take two to tango. Europe will want us back. Well, Will they want us back? That's only going to happen if they think the debate is settled here. Hmm. But just let me give you a counter-narrative. What happens if Marine Le Pen becomes president of France? It's not impossible. We, we tend to look at this from, through our own lens, mm-hmm. but actually Europe is going to change as well. Mm-hmm. Some ways for good, some ways possibly less good. So what we won't have is a rerun of that debate, thank God. I mean, that was one of the worst debates we've ever had. But what I think will happen is that the next generation, is part of the reason why I've written the book, the next generation has to understand that one of the reasons that Brexit happened was because quite a lot of people completely disengaged from the political process. Mm. And Brexit, the the Leave campaign, managed to fire up people using their populism, polarisation and post-truth tactics, fire up people who had been disengaged, actually to say that this is what I want to get engaged in. Now, we have to find a way of engaging the next generation in saying, do you know what, that politics just hasn't worked and we've got to change it. And part of changing it, I think, will be, eventually, I think that our, our relations with the European Union, they'll have to change because the damage that's been done and the barriers that have been put up and the mess that's been created, we can't keep just keep ignoring it and willing it away. You've castigated Boris Johnson already, but you think he has tarnished the right honourable part of being a politician, yet MPs were thrown out of the House for calling him a liar. The system simply didn't seem to be working at that point. Or was it just him? Well, I have some sympathy here for the kind of John Burkos and Lindsay Hoyles because it is not within the rules of the House to call another MP a liar. So, to if, just uh, explain what you mean by those two particular individuals. Well, John Burko having been Speaker for many years recently and then Lindsay Hoyle now sure. being the Speaker. So they throw people out... You have to use these euphemisms, you know, he's being economical with the truth or he's not being entirely accurate, mm-hmm. you get, which I just think for the public feels very, very odd. So you have seen MPs thrown out of the House of Commons for calling Boris Johnson a liar, even though every single person on the planet knows that Boris Johnson is a liar. And that, I think, is because up until Johnson, I would say this about Theresa May, I'd say it about John Major, I would say it about David Cameron, I think that when push came to shove, I would disagree with a lot that they did, but when push came to shove and they stood at that dispatch box, they tried to tell the truth. Johnson had no... Johnson couldn't care less. Mm. And so the whole thing about being right honourable, our entire system is founded on the idea that, you know, we're all good chaps. Uh, And if you get a bad chap, like a Trump or a Johnson in charge... 
The system can't deal with it. And one wonders whether the Johnson Premiership actually exposed the weakness in the British Constitution in allowing anything like that ever to happen. Yeah, it did. And I think the other thing it exposed was the fact that our political parties are... I mean, the Conservative Party, the membership's right down, very old, very white, very middle or upper class, and yet they got to choose our last three prime ministers. In fact, the last one, Sunak, they didn't even bother taking to them in case they made another catastrophic mm -hmm. error and put in a sort of Liz Trust mark too. So, yeah, there are definitely weaknesses there in the way our politics works. I mean, did the Tory party get rid of Johnson for noble reasons or because he was simply no longer popular? I think a bit of both. I think there are people in the Conservative Party who just had enough of the lying and the, and the chaos, the utter chaos of his leadership. But I think for Sunak and Sajid Javid, I think it was their departure that, that tipped it over the edge. And I think they just thought, we're not going to win with this guy. We've got to get rid of him. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow. And we'll be right back after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. You write about the threat of democracy if we do nothing to change politics, and the greatest threat is the rise of fascism. Is this something you worry about often, or are you including it here as a worst-case scenario? Well, I think you can make the case. I'm not, not just talking about Britain here, but I think you could make the case that Trump definitely has fascist tendencies. Now, Trump, if the Republican nomination were held tomorrow, he would, he would become the nominee. And he is, without doubt, a highly effective populist, polarising, post-truth politician. There's a guy who's done so much damage to America and to the world, and yet he still has this fanatical following. And I do think that, I quote Madeleine Albright, you'll have interviewed Madeleine Albright, Bill mm. Clinton's Secretary of State. She wrote a book not long before she died. It's called Fascism, A Warning. And she wrote about what, what happened in the 30s. And I write in this book about a lot of the parallels. Sometimes when we talk about fascism, those who don't want to have the argument think that we're saying a leader's going to come along and try and exterminate an entire race like Hitler did with the Jews. But the Holocaust wasn't the start of Hitler's fascism. The fascism developed over the years. And I make the point about a lot of these very seemingly small things, curbing the right to protest, voter ID to try and suppress the vote. You can argue these are small things, but if you start to build a picture 
you start to develop a picture of authoritarianism. Now, to be fair to the Conservative Party, not something I say that mm. often, but to be fair to them, they did get rid of Johnson. He's not like Trump in the Trump tramples on people and my view, but that sort of bumbling amiability that Johnson projects. But he's brighter than Trump. Probably, but he was doing some, I think, very, very dangerous things. Like? Well, I think it's like these some of these things that sort of curb the right to protest and make it harder for journalists to do their job and the, the kind of relentless attacks on the public servants, the impartiality of the civil service and all this sort of stuff. So I think we should be alert to fascism. And certainly if you look at Russia... What you're seeing there with Putin, I think you have to put that in the fascist category. What practical things could we do to encourage young people and a diverse mix of young people into politics? Not just those who've grown up debating at public school. Well, that is my point. When I first wrote the book, I sent it to quite a lot of young people, sent the draft to a lot of young people to sort of get their sense of it. And a guy actually, a young man called Tariq Sally. He got in touch with me out of the blue. I, I didn't know him. And he got in touch with me. And he, and he actually said something very, very interesting. He said that people like him are brought up to think there are barriers to where they can go. And then they go into education and they're given more barriers. Whereas people who go to the top private schools are brought up to think there are no barriers to what they can do. And then they go to schools like Eton and Harrow, they're absolutely told you're like a kind of almost like a, a super race. Just think of this, John. In our history as a country, three times as many prime ministers have come from Eton as have come from the Labour Party. That is incredible. It is incredible, but it's true. And the two... I'm going to have to check. Well, you check <laughs> it. I'm telling you, you'll get the numbers. The number of Etonian prime ministers is into, I think it's 21, and the number of Labour prime ministers, I think, is seven. Good God. Yeah. So... They start with an advantage and then they give them more. And what I try to do in the book is, it's not just about young people, it's about anybody who wants to make a difference, is to try and give them some tools to build confidence, understand what a campaign is, how you build a campaign, how you develop a message, what a strategy is, how you inspire a team, all that sort of stuff. So the first part analyzes the problem. Then it's about how you look after yourself as a campaigner. And then the third part is when you know all you know about politics, you still want to go into it. How do you do it? But the problem is the the private sector of education is about sort of telling the pupil that they are destined for power. And you're trying to generate that kind of certainty of possibility. Yeah. Uh, Not certainty, in, but possibility. Yeah. yeah. That possibility. And I think, but, look, but that's a very uphill task. Well, it might be, but then, you know, I quote some interesting examples. I mean, John Major came from a very poor background but became Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister. You might say he's an exception that proves the rule, but it shows it can be done. And I quote a lot of young people who have made change happen, lots of single-issue campaigners who have made change happen. So politics is not just about the politicians, it's about... Like I say in the introduction, it's a, it's a wild sort of idle fantasy. I'd love it if a young person read this book and it inspired them to go into politics and one day they became prime minister. I'd love that. But actually, just as important to me would be somebody who read this book and thought, do you know what, he's got a point. You've got to actually do stuff. It's not You can't just sit on your phone and tweet your anger. You've got to go and do stuff to try and make change happen, like Greta did. I'm a huge admirer of Greta Thunberg. Mm. Because I think, you know, she started a campaign on her own with a placard outside of Parliament. And from that has grown into this global phenomenon who, whether you agree with it or you don't, she has been part of change. And there are lots and lots of people like that. So I think there are possibilities. And I know Hugh 
adored Nelson Mandela. And one of my favourite quotes of his, which is in the book several times, everything is impossible until you make it happen. Have you tried going into state school, secondary, and started talking about the possibility of politics? Yes, I do that. And do you really sense a keenness for involvement? I sense a keenness for involvement among some. I sense sometimes a complete indifference of others. But I think if but you... isn't the awful truth that many of those kids literally think there is no prospect of their ever having a role in it, nor would they want one? That is true for some, but not for all. And I think that you have to go into those places and try and inspire them to understand that it affects them, that one of the reasons why a lot of these kids in our country do feel there is no future for them is because politics has done that to them. Mm. They've been excluded from politics. Their parents feel excluded from mm, politics. Mm. And I, I actually think the whole thing of political education, we should, just as we teach our kids that sport is good for them, we should actually teach them that learning how to argue and learning to care about the world around you. This is why I get so angry about this whole nonsense about woke. Woke has just become a kind of insult for anybody who, who actually wants to campaign to make the world a better place. I think if you go into most schools, including in some of the toughest areas, and say to them, what makes you angry? They might not define it as politics, but they'll be in, entering into a political arena in what they say. And I think then trying to persuade them that actually there's merit in them trying to get involved, get engaged. And the parties have to find ways of opening up to them and getting them involved better. But doesn't education need to totally. broaden its whole approach and recognise that one of the things you have to do in education is to embrace the possibility of power in the hands of the people you're teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I just don't think that the vast majority of kids who go to school think there's any chance whatever that they could influence the course of this country's destiny. Well, for most of them, that may turn out to be true. But they can all vote when they grow up and they can all get involved in any campaign that they want. Because the short answer to the question, but what can I do the title of the book. And by the way, I was inspired to write it by the people who asked me that question, young people who asked me that question all the time. So these schools you go into and colleges and, and you say to them, this is a problem, this is wrong. And they'll say, yeah, but what can I do? And what I say to them is, you do whatever you can do. You can make a difference. You can get organised in a campaign. You can decide to start one. But isn't it all bigger than that? Isn't it actually about the class system? A lot of it is. A lot of it is. And there's something that was started recently called the 93% Club. Oh. Right, And the 93% club is for people who went to state schools to kind of network in the same way that the private school people do. I do think as well, I talk a lot in the book about public speaking. Uh, I remember Charles Kennedy, he used to, you know, he went to a school, he went to Lakaba High School, which is not a posh school, and they did debating in, you know, a state school and they did political debating. And, you know, I think if you'd have said that to me when I was a kid, I thought, oh, God, you know, we've got better things to do. But actually, I think it's incredibly important that we try and develop the public speaking skills and communication skills in schools. Do you think it would help in the end if the UK was to move to compulsory voting? Oh, for sure. For sure. I've always thought that. I, there were very, very few things that I used to try and press Tony Blair to do that I thought he wasn't keen to do because policy wasn't really my job. But I thought, I always felt we should lower the voting age and bringing compulsory voting. Actually, if you think of an election campaign being fought to try to attract young people... Exactly. Um, and because at the moment, they're left out of the debate. Well, I make the point 
as well in the book that one of the reasons why politicians direct policy to pensioners is because they know that pensioners are more likely to vote. It should be the other way around. Election campaigns should all be about the future. They should all be about what kind of future we're trying to give to our young people. But if the politician thinks, well, the young people aren't going to bother, bother to vote, and of course now when you have a government that's deliberately trying to stop young people vote by making it more difficult to vote, like this nonsense with the voter ID thing, to deal with the non-existent problem of fraud representation out of the ballot box, then I think that, yeah, I, I would absolutely. And the thing is, I'm in a different position now. I'm not a politician and I'm not really a journalist either. I do politics in a different sort of way and I do journalism in a different sort of way. Yeah, but you use both your journalism and your politics to... Well, I try and, try, to, try and get change. But the point I was going to make is that politicians don't ever feel they can criticise the public and the media don't feel they can criticise their readers or viewers, OK? But I think sometimes it's worth saying to people, listen, you've got a responsibility as well. You as a citizen have a responsibility. I've got a whole chapter about the, the three statements that people say about politics that absolutely do my nut in, right? One is... There's no point voting because nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes. How can anybody say nothing ever changes? We're living in a world utterly defined by the pace of change. They're all the same. doesn't matter who you vote for, they're all the same. I mean, <laughs> would Britain have been different if you had Jeremy Corbyn, not Boris Johnson? Yes, it would. Would America be different if Hillary Clinton had beaten Donald Trump? For sure. So this idea that it makes no difference who's in power, mm -hmm. utter nonsense. So these statements, they have to be challenged, but people say them the whole time, oh, no point, no point getting involved, nothing ever changes. And the other one that people say is one person can't make a difference. That's complete nonsense. You were expelled from the Labour Party because of a stand you took on Brexit. What, if anything, would make you become a card-carrying member again? I've, in my heart, I am a card-carrying member of the Labour <laughs> Party. I, I never felt that I wasn't. But I've, I've quite enjoyed, I think on the podcast, for example, I, although Rory Stewart thinks I'm very tribal, I don't feel restricted in what I say. Whereas I think if you're a kind of fully-fledged member, I probably will rejoin, to be honest. I probably will. If they'll have you. I think they'd have me. <laughs> Try it. Signs are good. They're very interesting. <laughs> Fiona, my partner, who you know, she actually resigned before I was expelled because she was very angry about the way that the anti-Semitism issue wasn't being dealt with by Corbyn. And she actually doesn't want to rejoin. She actually is feeling a sort of sense of liberation and freedom. She'll vote Labour and she supports the Labour Party. But I, but, but I certainly would encourage people to get in, involved in parties. And, and that, you know, if people feel like they're Tories, I think they should join the Tory party. If people feel like they're Lib Dems, join the Lib Dems. But at least get involved and get engaged. Can you see any of the momentum or ideological confidence that brought new Labour to power? Of which, of course, you were in the engine. Um, I do. I, don't, I, I, I think it's very hard to compare one era with another. Um, well, are we in a dynamic era? I'd like it to be more dynamic. I would like it to be more dynamic. I think given this government has done so much damage... I mean, you're very controversial and aggressive. The one thing we could never say is that you weren't dynamic. <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you very much indeed. No, I'm serious. I mean... <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can't say that, that this is a very dynamic moment in British politics. I think what I'd say to that, I think Labour have about a year now to try to generate... There's no point in trying to ape what we did. We're in a different era. But they have a year. I think Keir Starmer, what he's done very, very well is deal with the negatives of the Labour mm -hmm. Party, sort the Labour Party out, 
I think he's done a very, very good job drawing attention to the uselessness of the Tory government. And now he's got a year really to cement the sense, and this is where we're different, and this is what we'll do, and this is why you should be interested and engaged and excited about it. And, you know, that's the hardest bit in a way. And where do you really see Labour standing right now? I mean, do you, do you see them as a party with real prospect? Well, listen, he's gone from... He's taken the Labour Party from a position where it almost felt existential at the last election to a position where now... Explain the, that. ..that Labour Party did so badly at the last election that you almost felt, well, can they survive? Yeah. And, and no political party has a divine right to exist. Yeah. Look across Europe and see the parties that have come and gone. But I think he's... I think Labour can win the next election should win the next election because the government's been so bad, but that is never enough to get you over the line. It's got to be about you in the end. Now, you love a strategy, which you break down in simple terms to three things, objective, strategy, tactic. If you had to write one short post-it note for Keir Starmer today, what would it say? Uh, objective, win big. Mm -hmm. um, strategy, mm. own the future. Best campaign song ever... Bill Clinton's first campaign, Fleetwood Mac, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Own the future. What if Keir Starmer said, come join me, put your shoulder to my wheel? Oh, that's a long sigh. <sighs> I, I realise that you wouldn't kick it out of bed. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I'd, I'm just hearing your if... wife say... Be steady with what you say, no, old no, boy. No, one of the reasons. Well, I, I, one of the look. I, I, I want the. I desperately want the Labour Party to win. Yeah, I desperately want to see the back. And of you know about fighting elections. Yeah, um, but at the same time, and all you do is write. One of the reasons I've written this book. Part of it is as a guidebook and a tool mm. book for others to do it. I get tired. I, I, I'm 65 now, John. I'm, That's no age at all. I know man. it's no age at all. Listen, I'll be happy to help in some way, but I'm not going to go back and do the sort of job I did before. I was 10 when you were born. Aop, aop, aop. No, I can see that you would do it if there was a, a momentum building, and they wanted help. You'd give it. I would always help the Labour Party, but what I'm not going to do is 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 go and sort of run a campaign, and 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 I think they need a new generation doing that anyway. What would you do if somebody knocked on your door and said, "Do you mind becoming Lord?" Well, it's happened, and I've always said no. Well, uh, you I, could have been elevated. Yeah, I, I could have been elevated. Uh, I don't see it as elevation. I see it as being stuck in the House of Lords. No, 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 surely it's also about trying to put your shoulder to the wheel. Yeah, but you can put your shoulder... Listen, I, I've got no... I don't disrespect people who do that, go down that route because the House of Lords exists and it's part of our political process, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. One of the really fascinating uh, moments in British politics at the moment was the implosion of the Scottish National Party. Yeah. Did it surprise you? Yes. Uh, I Do, get, does it offer Labour an opportunity? Definitely. I think there's definitely an opportunity there because I think, I think a little bit like people feel that the Tories have been in power too long here and they're just sort of churning their way through the Prime Minister. We're on to our fifth Prime Minister in six years. It's like sort of we used to Is laugh. Is that right? Yeah, we used to laugh at the Italians when they changed That's their Prime shocking. Minister. shocking. Yeah, I know. And God knows how many chancellors. My favourite tweet of the entire year was Nadim Zahawi a tweet that started when I was Chancellor of the Exchequer. It was only there about four minutes. <laughs> you speak of bad change like Brexit, but also good change like the Good Friday Agreement. Looking back, do you think this was the greatest achievement of new Labour in terms of real change? Well, that depends on whether it's cemented for the future. 
I think... Um, I mean, lots of people said it was completely impossible. Mm. That's one of the contexts in the book in which I quote that Mandela thing, everything's impossible until you make it happen. It, it felt impossible. It felt impossible right up to the time that it happened. I'll tell you the other thing, John, one of the many reasons I absolutely despise Boris Johnson, on the day that the Good Friday Agreement came together, he was in the tent that I was briefing. He was a journalist on wherever he was then. And he was one of the few that looked absolutely miserable. The rest were absolutely excited and felt that this was really important. And, and, it, and he'd wanted the thing to fail the whole way through. Um, no, I, I think, yeah, I've said before, that was, for, to my mind, that was the best single day of all the days we had. I didn't particularly enjoy the election wins. I should have done, but I didn't. Yeah, I do think it probably was. I think it probably was. What does it say about British politics that there ever was a Boris Johnson? It says that we became a media political culture in which entertainment was more important than policy. And Labour? You happy with the leadership? The reason I got kicked out of the party, I've not been happy with how they've handled Brexit. But I, I think Keir Starmer's done a good job and I think he'd be... I actually think... Well, what could they have done about Brexit? I honestly don't think they needed to back the Brexit deal. Well, Jeremy Corbyn could have fought a proper campaign in the referendum. And I think once Brexit happened, I think Labour should have been in a position of saying, OK, it's happened, we're not reversing it, but we're going to call it out every step of the way. Hmm. At the moment, this sort of Brexit on both sides means that the debate's not even happening about the real damage that Brexit is doing to our economy, to our culture and to our standing in the world. That being said, I understand why Labour don't want to fight the next election on Brexit. I get that completely. I think Keir is a very solid, very good guy. I, think, I actually think Keir could be one of those politicians who is better in government than as a campaigner. I think he's a creature of government. I think he showed that as a DPP. He's a well-organised man. Yeah, I think he's methodical, he's serious, he's got substance... Um, and my God, it'd be better than anything that we've had in the last few years. I think the only problem, surely, is engagement with the public. Which is a very, very important part of political leadership. Mm. Um, but, you know, the other thing to say, it's like Schultz in Germany. I, th I think that there's... I know Germany's a very different political culture to ours, but I, th I sort of think people are sick to death of the showbiz of politics in this country. Uh, we did a bit of that. Tony was very much... Uh, I mean, Tony was a really serious, substantial political figure, but, you know, we knew how to kind of do the performance and all that stuff. Johnson, that's all he did. Uh, and as for Truss, I mean, honestly, mm. beggar's belief to me that she sort of... She's swanning around the world, picking up massive checks to tell us what she thinks about this and the other. I mean, she was a complete and total disaster. What's your ambition? For the book or for my life? The book, the <laughs> life, the future of the country. I'd like the book to do very, very well. I'd like uh, people to read it and, and then do something about getting more engaged in politics. I think for the rest of my life, I, I want to I want to carry on trying to make a difference in, mm. in, in a different way to have done it before. Don't you think the country's actually got loads of people who want to do more and make this country work? Yeah, absolutely. But there is no channel for them to do it. So you've got to find... So many of our institutions are fossilised. The local council... Listen, we're sitting here in Camden, OK? Mm. Philip Gould, my closest friend in politics, mm. his daughter, she's the leader of the council here. Young woman. And a good one. Yeah, making a difference. Mm -hmm. no, she, she did try to get into Parliament a few years ago, and I think it's a good thing now, looking back, I felt very sorry for it, it didn't work. Right, but looking that back, she's a young woman really making a difference. So, you can do stuff, and it's just a question of 
you know, Georgia grew up in a political household. She probably always thought she might end up in politics. But I'm trying to encourage people who haven't even thought of politics that actually, do you know what? There might be something in it for you. Alistair Campbell, I was expecting you to beat me up. <laughs> but actually, I've enjoyed it very, very much. Good. Perhaps I enjoy being beaten up. But I don't, no, think, no, 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 I don't no. think you have beaten me up. <laughs> and it's great to see you in such good form. And I think even at our advanced age, and you're much less advanced than I am, we have something to contribute. Mm. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because I think young, a lot of young people do want to make the world a better place, but they don't know how. We better tell them what the book is called. It's called, But What Can I Do? And you can phrase it in any way you want. You do. But what can I do? But what can I do? But what can I do? Lots of different ways of thinking of it, John. It's very clever. <laughs> I'm on top of it all. Great stuff. Thank Alistair, you. thank you very much indeed My for pleasure. talking with us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That was Alistair Campbell, who I very much enjoyed catching up with in a less fractious exchange. As ever, there are links to Alistair's podcast and that new book in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please follow the podcast on your platform of choice and go forth and tell your friends. Multiply. I'll be back with the brilliant actress, Ajoa Endo. So, I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.